so we're going to talk about Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy. And uh, that's such a familiar story to so many people that I thought, how can I treat it in a fresh way? I edited Ashamed of the Gospel for John MacArthur, and there is an appendix in that book, I'll mention it, uh, that chronicles like almost blow by blow the whole downgrade controversy. And it's uh, if you want a simple overview of the thing, that, that's what you should read. And I figured some of you will have read it. So what I want to do is start by giving you some of the background and set the context for Victorian England and why this was such a big deal and why it exploded the way it did. And so I'm going to just give you all that background first, and then we'll talk about what actually happened in a, in a very abbreviated sense. I'll give you the rundown on the, on the controversy itself. Charles Spurgeon was just 19, came to London to pastor what was the largest, oldest, and most important Baptist church in the United Kingdom. That was 1854. This church had been pastored by John Gill, who's a magisterial Baptist, uh, Benjamin Keach, who likewise was a historical figure of some stature in the Baptist movement, and, and, uh, and now Charles Spurgeon comes. He's not even 20 years old when he starts. This is 1854, and the next 15 years were filled with a series of controversies in which Spurgeon himself was at the center. He didn't start these controversies, and most of them weren't even doctrinal controversies, But when he came to London, because he was so young and because he became so instantly famous, he was lampooned a lot by London's political cartoonists in the newspaper. He was harshly criticized by the newspapers, openly condemned even in some of the leading religious periodicals of the time. The hyper-Calvinists absolutely hated him because of his evangelistic emphasis. And some Christian leaders despised him merely because his popularity seemed, you know, out of proportion to his youthfulness. I think they were jealous. One very harsh and unreasonable critic, angry critic, in a widely read evangelical publication called him, and this I'm quoting his exact words, he said, he's a nine days wonder, a comet that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere. He's gone up like a rocket, and before long, he will come down like a stick. And that writer attributed Spurgeon's popularity to, and these again are his words, a diseased craving for excitement among just the common people of London. Contempt for Spurgeon, and that was kind of widespread among religious leaders at the time. About two and a half years after Spurgeon came to London, because literally no auditorium in the city was sufficient to hold the number of people who wanted to hear him, his congregation moved first to a place called Exeter Hall. I did a a, a, a seminar at the Shepherds Conference maybe four or five years ago about Spurgeon and some of his experiences in London, where I described in detail Exeter Hall. It was a, a... YMCA-owned auditorium with lousy acoustics and tons of seating, and nobody else ever wanted to preach there, but Spurgeon had a voice. He could make himself heard, so he preached at Exeter Exeter Hall for a while, but that wasn't even big enough, and so they moved to a place called the Royal Surrey Gardens. This was a brand-new concert hall that was built in an area of London that had formed a park-like atmosphere, and in the middle of this park was a large rectangular uh, 
building, a, a concert venue, really, with a 12,000-seat 12, uh, 12, capacity, 12,000 people. This had a large main floor and then two stacked galleries made out of cast iron. It was a classic Victorian building. And the first time Spurgeon preached there, the very first time he preached there, in October of 1856, this nefarious group of young hooligans purposely started a panic during the opening prayer. While he's praying, they shouted, fire. And in the ensuing stampede, seven people were killed. And the city newspapers held Spurgeon himself responsible for it. They claimed that if he weren't so hungry for fame and large audiences, this tragedy never would have happened. And that whole incident plunged Spurgeon into a long state. Told in his biography and all of that is that he fainted when all of this happened, and they carried him unconscious from the place. People thought, and some of the newspapers reported, that he was dead. And it was more than two days before he woke up, uh, which I find very difficult to believe, but that's what everyone at the time reported. And when he woke up, he was depressed, severely depressed, and he struggled after that with depression for all of his life. Now, those early controversies came to Spurgeon. He didn't start them, and he didn't really defend himself very actively against all these attacks on him. He noticed the controversies, of course, and he actually kept a file with all of the cartoons and critical columns that targeted him. That's different from me. I get a lot of criticism on Twitter, and, and I don't save it, okay, just so you know. If you, if you tweet at me something angry, I won't keep it. But Spurgeon stuff in a file, and some of it is, uh, is copied in his autobiography. But he didn't answer it. Unless some vital point of doctrine was at stake, he was never really an active participant in those early controversies where he was the target. But there were some doctrinal controversies as well. Ian Murray's book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, traces three major controversies throughout Spurgeon's ministry. The first was a battle against the Arminian drift that was beginning to dominate English evangelicalism in the middle of the 19th century. Right about the time Spurgeon came to London, there was a, a revival that actually crossed the ocean. There was a revival in England, and there were revivals in, in New York at the same time. If you read about that era, the 1850s, was a time of revival in the English-speaking world, and Spurgeon in the midst of that. But <clears throat> the downside of this revival is that there was a strong Arminian flavor to it, uh, at, with, a, with a heavy stress on human free will and decisionism. That was uh, during the time of Finney, and Finney was at his peak in those days. And, you know, he was the, the, the godfather of decisionism. And, and so this affected all of that, and Spurgeon preached against it. He, he, he could see that the Arminian stress on human free will was severely clouding the central message of the gospel Namely, that salvation is of the Lord. It's not a fruit of the human will or, or human works. And so Spurgeon's Calvinism became the main target of the angriest attacks that he received in the various religious per periodicals. And, of course, he answered that attack uh, both in his sermons and in written replies. His famous tract, A Defense of Calvinism, which I believe was first published after his death, in, it's one of the chapters in his autobiography, 
But that explains the stance he took in this conflict against Arminianism. And his influence was profound. And it would be my assessment that Spurgeon's preaching and writing actually helped, in, in England at least, to stave off and delay for about three decades the dangerous modernist drift that ultimately came in on the heels of this Arminian tendency and, and began to overwhelm British Baptists in the final decade of Spurgeon's life. I think these controversies, the Arminian controversy at the beginning and the, the downgrade controversy at the end, were linked by a thread. They're not exactly the same controversy, but they were linked. And my point in all of that is that Spurgeon had been embroiled in con most of the time from the beginning of his ministry until around 1870. And 10 years after he came to London in 1864, Spurgeon ignited, uh, I think almost intentionally, a major controversy with the established church when he preached a sermon titled Baptismal Regeneration. Again, he was merely defending the purity and simplicity of the gospel against what you've read about the Oxford movement. This was the remnants of the Oxford movement, which was a trend that had been moving Anglicans steadily toward high church forms and sacramentalism and almost a, a kind of a brand of Roman Catholicism that was creeping into the Anglican church. And in fact, multitudes of Anglicans following the path that had been blazed by John Henry Newman had left the Church of England in order to become Roman Catholics. And you know, John Henry Newman, who started out as an Anglican minister, ended up as a Roman Catholic cardinal. Baptismal regeneration, that sermon, uh, was an extended refutation of the common Anglican teaching that the sacrament of baptism normally conveys the grace of regeneration, that if, if you baptize a baby, he's considered regenerate. And that's, that was the central teaching of, uh, of high church Anglicanism, at least. And Spurgeon knew before he preached that sermon on the subject that the sermon would be controversial because he warned his publishers that the sermon was about, he was about to preach might actually end the demand for printed copies of his sermons in England. And, you know, Passmore and Alabaster publishers became Spurgeon's chief publishers. They were the ones who started publishing his sermons, and, and they, they printed hundreds of thousands a week. It was a huge source of income for the publishers and a decent source of royalties for Spurgeon himself. But he didn't care about the money. He wanted the truth to be known. And so he told Passmore and Alabaster this could end the sermon series. As it turned out, that one sermon sold nearly a quarter of a million copies, and it ignited a firestorm of controversy all across England. The Anglican establishment came hard after Spurgeon for questioning their orthodoxy, and Spurgeon stood his ground. He ended up preaching several more sermons on the subject. You can look them up in his sermon collection, titles like Children Brought to Christ, Not to the Font, and The Book of Common Prayer Weighed in the Balances of the Sanctuary. Great sermons and pretty harsh criticisms of Anglican doctrine. I gave a message just last month at the original Founders Conference in St. Louis where I dealt with some of the earlier, other early controversies of Spurgeon. And so I, I won't recap all of that here. I won't recap any of it. You can actually find that lecture on YouTube if you want to, 
hear more about some of the early controversies of Spurgeon. I think the message, it's like I said, YouTube, so it's video, and it's titled A Marvelous Ministry, which I borrowed that title from a little book about the publication of Spurgeon's sermons that was written in 1905 by Charles Ray. So I stole his title, but look for that, A Marvelous Ministry. And my lecture is about Spurgeon's preaching, and the first part of it talks about how he prepared his sermons and all of that, but the rest of it is about how his simple approach to declaring truth sparked what became a seemingly endless series of controversies. And the fact is, from about 1870 until 18, so 17 years there, Spurgeon was at the peak of his popularity and the height of his influence, and During those years, that's the extraordinary part of Spurgeon's ministry. There weren't a lot of controversies. For like 17 years, the controversies were there, but they weren't as heated and they weren't as numerous. And the newspapers actually began to treat Spurgeon with respect rather than contempt. So things seemed peaceful, and I think Spurgeon himself thought that the gospel is gaining ground and his ministry is is helping move England in the way it should be. And there arose a generation of younger ministers, and many of them had been students in Spurgeon's pastor's college who seemed totally unaware that Spurgeon had ever been thought of by anyone as a warrior. They thought of him as a sort of grandfatherly, uh, kindly uh, source of just simple Bible teaching and non And many of these young men were taken totally by surprise when the downgrade controversy erupted in 1887, and this created a firestorm within the Baptist Union, which was Spurgeon's own ministerial fellowship, and it wasn't just a troublesome disagreement or a point of, on one point of doctrine. This became a prolonged battle over the authority of Scripture, that, and this reached even to America. Spurgeon himself actually seemed to be caught off guard by it, to learn that the issues at stake in this fight, the downgrade controversy, would, would be so controversial among his fellow Baptists. He wasn't prepared for this. Like I said, he thought those years of peace signified the fact that his influence was, was moving England and the Baptist Union in the right direction, and I think he was really unprepared for the reality. Some of the men whom he himself had trained would take their stand with people who opposed Spurgeon. And this battle raged for years and arguably lasted well into the 20th century, but Spurgeon himself died just five years into the controversy. In March of, 19, of 1891, Spurgeon was saying farewell to one of the preachers from his college, a man named E.H. Ellis, who was leaving for Australia to minister there, and Spurgeon said, "'Goodbye, Ellis. You'll never see me again.'" This fight is killing me. And he was right about that. The following month, Spurgeon became so ill that he couldn't preach. But he was back in the pulpit for his second to the last sermon ever on Sunday morning, May 3rd of 1891. This was a message on Psalm 47 where it says, Lo, I come. That was the title of the sermon that he borrowed from the text of Scripture, Lo, I come. And he began that sermon with these words, quote, To my great sorrow, last Sunday night I was unable to preach. I had prepared a sermon on this text, 
with much hope of its usefulness, for I intended it to be a supplement, morning sermon, which was a doctrinal exposition. The evening service was intended to be practical. And I came here feeling quite fit to preach when an overpowering nervousness oppressed me, and I lost all self-control, and I left the pulpit in anguish. He said, I come hither this morning with the same subject. So he came back to preach the message that he couldn't preach because, and I think that's an, it's an interesting expression, an overpowering nervousness. He was just so understressed and, and, under stress and so uh, agitated because of the controversy that he couldn't even preach. He preached one, that one sermon and then was homebound for another month And after that, he preached one last time at the tabernacle on June 7th of 1991. His final sermon was titled, The Statute of David for the Sharing of the Spoil. And it was a message on 1 Samuel 30, verses 21 through 25, which is kind of an obscure text from the Old Testament. And Spurgeon's wife recorded that for the next three months, he was completely laid aside with illness. She said he had congestion of the lungs, gout, nephritis, which is an inflammation of the kidneys. It used to be called Bright's disease. And this combination of kidney ailments actually is what what was the physical cause for his death. He also had some kind of influenza or viral illness. Maybe it was early COVID. I don't know. <laughs> and But in top of, on top of all of that, there is no doubt that stress from the downgrade controversy had made Spurgeon's physical afflictions worse and hastened his death. And in the final week of October 1891, as England was turning cold for the winter, he made the difficult journey by train 800 miles to the French Riviera, where he would often go in his later years to escape the harsh British weather. He was well familiar with the town of Mentone in France. That's where he always stayed at a hotel called the Hotel Beau Rivage. And he checked into room 14 there. And then on the final day of January of 1892, he went to heaven from that room, died in the hotel. There's a plaque to this day in the office at the Metropolitan Tabernacle that was taken from the Hotel Beau Rivage when they demolished the building. Because they tore the hotel down, they moved the plaque to London. And it says that's where Spurgeon died, but it isn't. He died in France. And in those final months, Spurgeon wrote weekly letters to the congregation at the tabernacle. These would be read publicly. So they had a a message from Spurgeon. And in fact, the Metropolitan Tabernacle still has the original copies of those letters in Spurgeon's own handwriting preserved in a file there. I had the privilege of viewing those letters in 2005. I was there at the Met Tab. They had me there to preach a couple of times at uh, at their summer conference. And that year, they, they graciously gave me this file. Let me have it for the evening to, to read Spurgeon's final letters to his congregation. I made photographic copies of most of those letters, so I still have them. And they are tender and warm words of encouragement and hope, and yet in places, they are poignantly filled with melancholy. It's clear that the fight really was killing Spurgeon. And so, Where did this controversy, the downgrade controversy, come from? And why did it turn into such a fierce fight? To understand, it helps to see that the Baptist Union was, to Spurgeon's world, what the Gospel Coalition and that class of 
closely aligned evangelical thought leaders are to the broad evangelical movement today. You'll sometimes hear me, you may have heard my message yesterday, I referred to them as Big Eva. That's a term I borrowed from Carl Truman to describe the evangelical public relations machine. Big Eva's driving passion is a desperate wish to see evangelical Christianity win admiration from the unbelieving world, and especially in the political and academic and popular culture realms. So Big Eva's blog posts are filled with movie reviews and comments on popular culture and politics, always politically correct, uh, because they're trying to impress the world, and they, they see that as the way to win the world. They believe that the great crying need of today's evangelicals is that we must get in step with the times and stay in step. Don't be old-fashioned. Don't be politically incorrect. And don't do or say anything that has fallen from fashion or is out of season. And that is precisely the kind of thinking that drove the Baptist Union in Spurgeon's time. Darwinism, you know, had the whole world rethinking not only the Genesis account of creation and the flood, but Darwinism actually was reforming every kind of every aspect of worldview, right down to the basic question of what is the highest authority in the universe. And of course, and, and the, the, the driving presupposition behind modernism is that science is the ultimate test of all truth claims. Science is the final arbiter of what is true, and therefore it's the highest authority in the universe. That was the belief. And there were church leaders saying, we've got to get in step with that. We've got to embrace that and understand it and adjust our understanding of Scripture to fit that. And one other point to note, Karl Marx was a contemporary of Spurgeon's, and he lived in London when Spurgeon's fame was at its peak. And Spurgeon's fame was remarkable. It was commonly said that Spurgeon was more famous and more recognizable and better known than the prime minister of England. And that was true, not an exaggeration. Marx's collaborator, Friedrich Engels, also lived in London from 1870 until about 1880, 13 years while Spurgeon was literally the best-known person in England. And during those years of peace, when Spurgeon wasn't creating any kind of controversy, and Marx and Engels, you've heard their names together before, I'm sure, because they collaborated to write the Communist Manifesto. And they both knew about Spurgeon, and they both despised him intensely. Marx wrote a letter to Engels in which he complained about Spurgeon and his influence. And there was also, at the time, a popular kind of scrapbook, or in Victorian England, it was, it was more like an autograph book uh, called a confession album. These were very popular, so that instead of getting someone's autograph, just getting their autograph, you would have them fill out a page in the confession book that lists their likes and dislikes with categories like, what's your favorite virtue? What's your favorite color? What's your least favorite historical questions like that. And Marx and Engels each filled out a page from one of these confession albums for Jenny Marx, who was Karl Marx's daughter. And um, Marx, for example, said his favorite dish was fish. And that he said his, this is interesting about Marx, he said his, his idea of happiness, that was one of the categories. What's your idea of happiness? He writes, to fight. While his idea of misery to submit. It's pretty telling, isn't it? 
There was also a category labeled the characters you most dislike. Engels answered that question with a single name, Spurgeon. Pretty interesting, isn't it? And I count that as a badge of honor for Spurgeon. By the way, if you want to see that, it's on the Internet. You can look that up, Jenny Marx's confession album, and you'll find the page that Engels filled out, and there is that question, who's your favorite you know, character? Spurgeon. But this was an era when Marxism was gaining a massive following worldwide. It was before communism had proved so disastrous. Marxism was hugely popular, especially in the academic realm, and Darwinism was being touted as true and settled science. And those things sounded progressive and sophisticated, while the gospel, and particularly the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, That was badly out of sync with modern notions of justice and fair play. You know, how can you impute someone's sin to the sinless Son of God? That doesn't seem fair. And so that was the argument. This idea of penal substitution, that cannot be God's plan for redemption because it doesn't fit our, our understanding of what justice entails. And meanwhile, Spurgeon was continually pointing out that the Darwinian notion of the survival of the fittest cannot be reconciled with the biblical account. Uh, he, he was a devoted enemy of Darwinism. In fact, there are cartoons, some of the cartoons lampooning him show pictures of Spurgeon with a monkey face or another one with him looking at a statue of a monkey. And, I, you know, constantly they were making fun of his anti-Darwinism because it was considered uncouth and unsophisticated and uneducated. And uh, he also pointed out that the theory of evolution doesn't adequately explain how life originated in the first place. Where did that come from? And Spurgeon was simultaneously decrying Marxism. People will tell you, well, he was, he was a political liberal, but the liberalism of his time is like the conservatism of his time. You hear people say, you know, classic liberalism. John F. Kennedy-style is considered extremely right-wing today. Well, that's happened to all politics over the past 150 years. So while Spurgeon was a liberal because he ministered to the working-class people and he saw that the class distinctions in England were hurtful to all of society, so he always voted liberal, but liberalism in those days was different than it is today, and he hated socialism, absolutely hated it. And uh, he was constantly showing that the economic and moral principles underlying socialism are unjust and unbiblical. So he would not be a liberal by today's liberal standards. So anyway, this was a significant clash of worldviews, literally a preview of what people today refer to as the culture war. And Spurgeon was admittedly old-fashioned and a little bit rustic in in a world that was enthralled with things that are newfangled and sophisticated. His fame and popularity with London's working class gave Spurgeon himself the illusion that biblical Christianity was gaining influence in the wider culture when, in reality, the wider culture was already drifting strongly towards secularism and naturalism and Darwinism and all those things. There were others in the Baptist Union, perhaps the majority of leading voices in what was the big Eva of that time, who were convinced that Spurgeon and his influence were an impediment to real progress. These were the early modernists, and 
They were church leaders who were convinced that the church needed to adapt not only its methodology, but also to some degree the message in order to stay in step with modern thought. One of these early modernists was a man named John Clifford. He was pastor of a smaller Baptist church that was adjacent to London. It was, it was on Prade Street, which is right at, next to Paddington Station. That's where his church was. And it was, a, it was a decent-sized church. It wasn't anything rivaling Spurgeon. But Clifford was well-known, and he craved academic respectability for the Baptists. And he was willing to adjust his opinions, even on the authority of, and inspiration of Scripture, in order to gain more respect and acceptance in the academic world. He was secretly sympathetic with the modernist agenda, and he had been elected president of the Baptist Union in 1888. That was one year after Spurgeon published the articles that launched the downgrade controversy. So he's coming into the presidency of the Big Eva Baptists uh, just as this controversy breaks out. Clifford's background wasn't terribly different from Spurgeon's. He was born just two years after Spurgeon. Like Spurgeon, he was youth. He was, Clifford was just 14 when he was converted. And his parents reputedly were Calvinists, but for convenience sake, Clifford's parents attended a general Baptist church, an Arminian-flavored Baptist church. And so while Spurgeon, as a young man, very young man, was steeped in strong gospel teaching from his own grandfather and rich doctrine that he gleaned from his grandfather's library of Puritan works, at the same time, John Clifford was going to Sunday school with moralistic Arminian influences. And while Spurgeon was reading and memorizing his favorite book ever, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress... John Clifford was at the same time devouring the poems and essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an American humanist and naturalist. But in the 1880s, it was believed among younger Baptists that Clifford and the modernist ideas that were you know, beginning to trickle out through Clifford's pulpit and other preachers of that generation, these younger guys thought this represents a brighter future for the Baptist Union. It's more in step with the times. It seems more cool, more stylish. And Spurgeon, you know, was considered old school, and he he really was. He was old-fashioned and unsophisticated, and deliberately so. Some of you might have heard a lecture I did at the Shepherds Conference in 2018. I've done several of these on Spurgeon, and that one in 2018 was about Spurgeon and his, his running conflict with Joseph Parker, If you haven't heard that, look up that lecture and listen to it. I promise you'll love it, and it'll help you understand some of the cultural background of English nonconformity in the late 1880s. That was it anyway. And it shows that there was this stark difference between Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, who were these two men, were the first and second most well-known pastors in England of all time. First time I ever heard of Joseph Parker was from my former pastor, Warren Wiersbe, who was an aficionado on all this stuff. And he used to say that people in in that era, Americans in droves, would visit England uh, and stay for two Sundays. And the lore among everybody was the first Sunday you go to hear Spurgeon, the second Sunday you need to go and hear Joseph Parker. So they shared that kind of fame. And Parker was more like John Clifford, 
in that he wanted to be stylish and progressive and, and much less doctrinally narrow than Spurgeon. He was not a Baptist. He was a Congregationalist and the pastor of City Temple in London, which uh, uh, Parker really didn't have any business entering into a dispute about the direction of the Baptist Union because he wasn't a Baptist, but he weighed in against Spurgeon anyway. So pretty much everyone outside of Spurgeon's innermost narrow circle of friends turned against him in the downgrade controversy. He felt like he was totally alone. In fact, uh, when he died, I think Spurgeon felt very lonely, much like the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Spurgeon felt that same way. Pretty much everyone with any influence in the UK and in much of America turned against Spurgeon. But he was confident that in time, he would be vindicated. So he didn't budge on his positions. And in fact, in a lecture to his students titled The Preacher's Powers of Obtaining It, he said this, quote, Posterity must be considered. I do not look so much at what is happening today, for these things relate to eternity. For my part, I'm quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future will vindicate me. And he was absolutely right. Time has vindicated him. Those who followed the progressive drift saw their churches decline and their denominations self-destructed, and all of that happened both in England and America. But think about it. Today, millions still read and are edified by Spurgeon's sermons. I don't know anyone who talks about reading Joseph Parker. He wrote a massive set. He published a massive set of his sermons covering Scripture called the Parker People's Bible. It's in the public domain, and I have an electronic copy of it, and I do refer to it occasionally. He, he does have the rare into some Bible verse, but it isn't anything like Spurgeon. Nobody reads Parker today. We all read Spurgeon. And I dare you to find any relevant edification in the extant works of John Clifford. I don't know that any of his stuff has even been preserved. So hold on to that thought. I'll come back to it. But, But you may ask, what was this downgrade controversy about, and how did it arise, and why are we still talking about it today? And I'm glad you asked. Those are all important questions. The downgrade controversy began in March of 1887 when Charles Spurgeon published the first entry in a two-part essay titled The Downgrade. Three words, The Downgrade. It was not downgrade one word, but two words. And he published this for the first entry in this essay in The Sword and the Trowel, which was his monthly periodical called A Record of Combat with Sin and Labor for the Lord. And that article was published anonymously. It didn't attribute the author, but uh, the actual author was a man named Robert Schindler, who was a a friend of Spurgeon's and a fellow Baptist pastor, Schindler, like Schindler's List, spelled the same way. Schindler had collaborated with Spurgeon in the editorial process of these articles, but and Spurgeon tagged it with his own personal endorsement. He said in a footnote, earnest attention is requested for this paper. We are going downhill at breakneck speed. And the article and part two, which came a month later, recounted the history of apostasy among English nonconformists. And Schindler noted that 
There were waves of apostasy, and each wave followed the exact same cycle. They were predictable. All waves of apostasy contained elements of the, of the heresy known as Socinianism. Socinianism was a, a virulent brand of theological liberalism that actually dates back to the time of the Protestant Reformation. It's named after two Italian guys, uh, an uncle and a nephew named Socinus. So Socinianism, who uh, jumped on board with the reformers in rejecting Catholic errors, but ended up rejecting everything that had any hint of Catholicity to it, which meant they, they rejected the authority of Scripture, most of the miracles of Scripture. It was classic liberalism. So when you hear the word Socinianism, just think liberal theology, because that's essentially what it is. You might say it like this. Every time, this was the point of, of the article, every time evangelicals begin to depart from the faith, starts with a leftward drift into some brand of liberal ideology or liberal doctrine, and it comes in waves. And these waves always follow the same pattern, and it's a pattern that repeats nonstop. And it has, by the way, continued to repeat several times in the century and a half since those articles on the downgrade controversy were originally printed. And as I said, this leftward kind of theology was called Socinianism in the time of the Reformers. But it was followed by several close cousins that all have the same set of ideas in it. German pietism, then deism, then Unitarianism, then modernism, then liberalism, and then the emerging church movement, and lately wokeism. And all of those are brands of skeptical religion that have a lot in common. They don't pretend to be skeptical at first. They'll say, no, 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 we still affirm all the fundamentals of the faith, but we want to see this social action or a, a di- something more to the gospel than just the idea of redemption from sin. And Schindler described this cycle in, in perfect detail. These are really good articles, uh, and I encourage you to read them. Here's what he said about it. Here's the cycle. First, he says, the ministers, then the churches got on the downgrade. And in some cases, the descent was rapid and in all very disastrous in proportion as the ministers seceded from the old Puritan godliness of life and the old Calvinistic form of doctrine, they became less earnest and less, less simple in their preaching, more speculative and less spiritual in the matter of their discourses, and they dwelt more on the moral teachings of the New Testament than on the great central truths of Revelation. Natural theology frequently took the place which the great truths of the gospel ought to. Sermons became more and more Christless. Corresponding results in the character and life, first of the preachers and then of the people, were only too plainly apparent, he says. So you get the idea that the, as, as pastors began to drift this way, their sermons became less biblical, more oriented towards politics and current events and things like that, more focused on the moral teachings of Scripture, and they had less to say about sin and redemption and repentance and, and, or uh, you know, any, of the, any of the great themes of gospel truth. And Schindler went on to say this, this, the heresy involved in this downgrade isn't always apparent at first because they try to cover it up. But it is a persistent fact that when people who begin to de- people begin to depart from the faith, 
they're, they're never honest about it. And Schindler noticed the same thing, how many no longer held orthodox theological ideas, nevertheless would stubbornly insist that they are perfectly orthodox because they signed the right doctrinal statement. They would hide behind the fact that they signed some orthodox confession of faith or some doctrinal statement, but, and here's a helpful rule of thumb, the real test of any man's orthodoxy is what he actually teaches, not the statement of faith he signs. Lots of heretics claim fidelity to orthodox confessions of faith, and they sign these with their fingers crossed. You realize, don't you, that Robert Schuller, of all people, who never met an article of faith that he couldn't twist, claimed that he could sign the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the canons of the Synod of Dort. But he was about as Calvinistic as Curly Howard. (laughs) Apostates in their early stages are devious. And Robert Schindler said this in his warning about the downgrade, quote, these men deepened their own condemnation and promoted the everlasting ruin of many of their followers by their hypocrisy and deceit, professing to be the ambassadors of Christ and the heralds of his glorious gospel. Their aim, though, was to ignore his claims, deny him his rights, lower his character, and rend the glorious vesture of his salvation and trample his crown in the dust. That's a pretty prosaic way of saying it. That's exactly how heretics work. And he further pointed out that when... Whenever one of these drifts into liberalism would begin, invariably, the conservative people in the church or denomination tended to remain silent because no one wanted to cause any division. No one wanted to think the worst of someone who professed faith in Christ and signed a sound doctrinal statement. So there was a great reluctance, much less to challenge or correct, the decline from the beginning when actually it might have been stopped if you got it at the beginning. But it picks up speed, and it goes so far on the downhill grade that inertia takes over, and there's no stopping it. In my opinion, Big Eva is there today, well down the downgrade. Schindler said, quote, Many of those who remained true to the faith were nevertheless reluctant to fight for what they believed in. Evangelical preaching was often cold and lifeless, and even those who held to sound doctrine were careless about where they drew the line in their associations with others. Those who were really orthodox in their sentiments were too often lax and unfaithful as to the introduction of heretical ministers into their pulpits, either as assistants or even occasional preachers, and in this way the Arian and Socinian heresies were introduced into Arian congregations." You get what he's saying there. People had guest speakers and associate pastors who, frankly, were clearly not orthodox, but they, they, they just tolerated that because they didn't want division. And at the end of that first article, Schindler said this, quote, These facts furnish a lesson for the present times when, as in some cases, it is all too plainly apparent that men are willing to forego the old for the sake of the new. But commonly it is found in theology that that which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. I've used that line hundreds of times. In theology, that which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. It's a good rule of thumb. And the first part of Schindler's essay generated quite a bit of discussion, but the controversy wasn't really fierce yet. People were like, that's an interesting survey of history. You know, 
They didn't see the practical implications to their own times. Uh, But the controversy became fierce. The following month, in April of 87, in part two of his essay, Schindler gave several stunning historical concrete examples of churches, sound churches, once sound churches, and once formerly formally, uh, fundamentally orthodox men whose lax or careless attitude toward unorthodoxy accidentally steered those churches and people in their circles of influence onto the downgrade. And he named people. For example, Philip Doddridge, who is a well-known author and hymn writer from the first half of the 18th century, who more than 100 years before Spurgeon's time wrote a book that is still often, often referred to and and recommended, and you may have a copy of it, called The Rise and Progress of Religion, and wrote some hymns that we still sing. He was also head of the main academy for training nonconformist ministers in, in the mid-1700s. And Schindler said that of Doddridge that he, quote, sometimes mingled in a fraternal matter, manner, even exchanging pulpits with men whose orthodoxy was questionable. And this had a detrimental effect on Doddridge's students, many of whom soon veered into heresy. And in the generation after Doddridge died, the school itself went apostate. So he's not saying Doddridge was off doctrinally, but that he tolerated and even platformed men who weren't reliable, and that had a detrimental effect on his students who in the very next generation apostatized. And Schindler then singled out some famous churches that were once orthodox, but by Spurgeon's time, they were totally Socinian. He said, for example, quote, in a pew of the old chapel in High Street, Shrewsbury, where Mr. Darwin and his father and his father's father received their religious training. So he's saying one of the problems with Darwin is that from childhood, he was hearing Socinian preaching liberal teaching that undermined the authority and reliability of Scripture. You'll sometimes hear the claim that Charles Darwin was a devout Christian until he began doing research for his book, The Origin of Species. The truth is, the only religion Darwin ever knew was a kind of Unitarian intellectualism, and that is what laid the foundation for his rejection of biblical creationism. In fact, even during Darwin's lifetime which is when these articles are written, Robert Schindler is already pointing out that Darwin's anti-biblical naturalism was rooted in teaching that he heard in an apostate church when he was a child. I think Schindler's right about that. Schindler also singled out the church where Matthew Henry was pastor in the late 1600s. And he's not blaming Henry, who was great and a really underrated commentator, in my opinion, but he says by, the, by, the, by Spurgeon's era, Henry was in the late 1600s. Spurgeon's era comes 150 years later. No, yeah, 150 years later. That church had been teaching full-blown Socinianism, he says, for very many years. So he gave, gives all these examples. Now, those were all Presbyterian and congregational examples. But then... Schindler turned to the Baptists, and he pointed out that the same pattern was evident in the history of those general Baptists, the Arminian-flavored Baptists. General Baptists constituted at least half of the Baptist Union of Spurgeon's time. The membership, half of them, were non-Calvinistic Baptists. So this part of Schindler's history really stung the Baptist Union. 
Baptists in Spurgeon's time were no more willing than Baptists today to hear people point out that there are signs of a leftward drift in their denomination. You know what I mean. And in my opinion, this was the part of Spurgeon's article, or of Schindler's article, that, that first began to provoke some real fireworks in the downgrade controversy. Schindler had carefully shown the pattern, namely that apostasy occurs in cycles, and it always follows this exact same trajectory. It starts with fairly benign-sounding breaches of the borders of orthodoxy by men whose overall orthodoxy is not really questionable, but he said that first step is never just the random questioning of this or that or the other article of orthodox belief, he says. He says it's always an attack on the inspiration and authority and accuracy of Scripture. And that opens the door to literally every kind of error. And soon, often within one generation, you have full-blown apostasy. Schindler said this, quote, Let a man question or entertain low views of the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and he is without chart to guide him and without anchor to hold him. He will apostatize. Now, if Schindler had lived a hundred years later, he would have said that the decline and apostasy of Fuller Seminary followed this exact same familiar and predictable pattern that he had pointed out in the downgrade articles, because that is absolutely the case. It always is. And Schindler was right precisely how apostasy always occurs. But when Robert Schindler suggested that the Baptist Union had a looming problem with apostates in their midst, and that the Union itself was already on the precipice of a, a dangerous and unstoppable downhill slide, that raised the hackles of a lot of influential Baptist leaders who, to be candid, were already eager to see Spurgeon retire so that they could pursue a different doctrinal agenda and shift to a whole different philosophy of ministry because they wanted to modernize some of the very features of Spurgeon's style that Spurgeon had always insisted these things are timeless and unchangeable, starting with the preaching of God's Word as if it's authoritative. Spurgeon was a lot like John MacArthur in many ways. And after naming some fairly well-known historic example of apostasy, Schindler summarized his argument with these words. This is a long quote, but I'm going to read it all. This is Schindler. In looking carefully over the history of the times and the movement of the times, of which we have written briefly, this fact is apparent, that where ministers and Christian churches have held fast to the truth that the Holy Scriptures have been given by God as an authoritative and infallible rule of faith and practice, they have never wandered very seriously out of the right way. But when, on the other hand, reason has been exalted above revelation and made the exponent of revelation, all kinds of errors and mischiefs have been the result. He says, if this be a fact, and who can disprove it, then we live in dangerous times, and there is great peril very near all of those, whoever they may be, who call into question the inspiration, the divine inspiration of the Word of God. And he closed his article, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, saying, the Lord help us all to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Word of the Lord, or the work of the Lord, for as much as we know our labor will not be in vain in the Lord. That was April 1887. Two months later, in the 
June issue, Schindler had a third article in which he simply chronicled the history of the downfall of Andover Seminary. Andover was a New York seminary that was founded by Congregationalists in 1807 uh, as an orthodox answer to the apostasy that had already overtaken Harvard Seminary in the second half of the 1700s. Think about that. Harvard was founded, you know, in the mid-1600s, less than 150 years later. It was so liberal that Andover Seminary was founded to be the conservative alternative. And is 1807, but within 50 years, Andover also apostatized. And this third article by Schindler was a fairly benign and objective account of this American seminary's decline into apostasy. But the implication he was making was clear. Schindler, and apparently Spurgeon as well, believed that the British Baptist Union was already following that same route of theological decline. And history proved they were right about that. But the Baptists didn't want to hear it. And Baptist reaction to those downgrade articles was split, all right? To read from John MacArthur's account in Ashamed of the Gospel, he says, those articles provoked displeasure from those who believed Schindler's analysis was too pessimistic, but also hearty agreement from many who were also troubled about the trends in British evangelicalism. It's just like on Twitter today, you've got split opinions, and they don't get along with each other. Those who agreed with Schindler's warning blasts responded to Spurgeon directly by sending him more proofs of apostasy and compromise in formerly sound churches. And Spurgeon read all of these accounts, and his outrage grew. And so the August issue of The Sword and the Trowel featured an article, this one written by Spurgeon himself, with the title, Another Word Concerning the Downgrade. Now get this, this whole thing started in March, we're in August, pretty much every issue of The Sword and the Trial now is hammering this, this truth that we're seeing a downgrade and we need to call a halt to this. And Spurgeon in his article minced no words. Schindler's tone actually by comparison had been fairly dispassionate. He was history. Spurgeon was overtly polemical and purposely provocative. Again, to quote from John MacArthur, Spurgeon's tone was more militant, more intense than Schindler. Spurgeon wrote this, quote, No lover of the gospel can conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. Our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly trending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent. He's talking about the the left-moving evangelicals, and ask yourself, how much farther could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth is going to be the object of their contempt? A new religion has been initiated, he says, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, this religion being destitute of more... And on this plea, it usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of Scripture is derided, and the Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into a fiction and the resurrection into a myth, and yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them? He sounds a little bit like a fundamentalist, doesn't he? 
And he went on to lay the blame for the downgrade squarely on the shoulders of the pastors. He wrote, quote, The case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scattered doubt and stab at faith. Germany was made unbelieving by her preachers, and England is following in her tracks. And then at the end of the article, he reunion over these issues, he wrote, It now becomes a serious question how far those who abide by the faith once delivered to the saints should fraternize with those who have turned aside to another gospel. Christian love has its claims, and divisions are to be shunned as grievous evils, but how far are we justified in being in confederacy with those who are departing from the truth? Again, MacArthur quoting. MacArthur says, That article rocked the evangelical world. Spurgeon, who for decades had been almost universally revered by evangelicals, was suddenly besieged with critics from within the camp. What he was proposing was diametrically opposed to the consensus of evangelical thought because all the trends were toward unification, harmony, amalgamation, brotherhood. Suddenly, here's a lone voice, but it's the most influential voice of all, urging believers to become separatists. The church was neither prepared nor willing to receive such counsel, not even from the Prince of Preachers. Now, I have posted online all of the major documents from the downgrade. The Sword and Trowel articles, they're all there, plus copies of sermons that Spurgeon preached that directly address this controversy. He addressed it in several sermons. Plus, I've got several other documents and accounts that were generated by this conflict. I will give you a web address for that if you want to read those documents at the end. I can't quote from all of them, but the simplest thorough overview of the downgrade controversy is that appendix in John MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel. But also, Ian Murray gives a really insightful analysis of the whole controversy in The Forgotten Spurgeon. So if you haven't read those accounts of the downgrade controversy, you must. That's your assignment. Don't come back next year until you've read them. (laughs) But here's a timeline of the events that those articles in The Sword and the Trowel set in motion. Remember, this issue was first introduced with Schindler's first entry in March 1887, The Sword and the Trowel. By September, the controversy is so heated that Spurgeon wrote this article about it, describing how you know he's receiving two different kinds of replies. One, an outpouring of supportive letters, many of them describing and documenting even more cases of apostasy among British Baptists. And Spurgeon was unaware of many of these until he got these letters. The other kind uh, of reply that he was flooded with was mockery and scorn aimed at Spurgeon, much of it suggesting that his age or his illness had addled his brain. And that's what this was all about. wrote this, quote, Our opponents have set to work to make sneering allusions to our sickness. All the solemn things we have written are the suggestions of our pain, they say, and we are advised to take a long rest. With pretended compassion, but with real insolence, they would detract from the truth by pointing to the lameness of its witness. They hurt his feelings with that, by the way. The leadership of the Baptist Union blew off Spurgeon's concern, saying, 
His complaints are too vague, too undocumented to war warrant any kind of action. His response was to bring up the idea of separation from the Union again. He wrote, a chasm is opening between the men who believe their Bibles and the men who are prepared for an advance upon Scripture. Inspiration and speculation cannot long abide in peace. Compromise there can be none. One way or the other, we must go. And he quoted Corinthians 6.15, what communion has Christ with Belial? We're out of time, so I can't really give you a, a whole lot more, but Spurgeon, in a stunning move, uh, the most beloved and best known of all Baptists, withdrew from the Baptist Union on October 28th of 1887. He sent a letter to the general secretary withdrawing. He sent that on a Friday. Before it could even be delivered, the local papers uh, presented, uh, printed an open letter from John Clifford towards Spurgeon, condemning him uh, for his attitude of wanting to draw and breaking fellowship. On the Tuesday following, Spurgeon handwrote a letter to Archibald Brown, his friend and one of his students, urging him to withdraw from the Union as well. I happen to own the original copy of that letter written in Spurgeon's own. Somebody auctioned it off on the Internet not long ago. I said, okay, i got to buy that. <laughs> so I have it. If you ever come to my office, I'll show it to you. But in, in this letter to Archibald Brown, Spurgeon refers to this open letter from Clifford with, these, with three words. He calls it deceivableness of unrighteousness, and he ends it with an exclamation mark. In January of 1888, about two and a half months after Spurgeon resigned, the Baptist Union Council met, and they formally accepted his withdrawal and passed a censure of him. And that ended Spurgeon's relationship with the Baptist Union. Over the ensuing years, the Union departed further and further from evangelical orthodoxy, just as he predicted. Spurgeon died in France in the first month of 1892, but he was right. History has vindicated Spurgeon's stance, and the names of those who sat in positions of leadership in the censure of Spurgeon, are we've all, all forgotten them. We don't know their names. Their works are not read except for historical reasons, and meanwhile, the gospel is still preached in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Multitudes still read and benefit from Spurgeon's sermons. He was right in every point he made about the downgrade, everything he said, and the warnings he issued still stand as relevant, so much so that if you read what he wrote about the downgrade today, you might think he's talking about Big Eva and the current drift leftward of so many Southern Baptists. The documents from this controversy are all worth reading, and if you want a place to start, I promise to give you the page where I've collected about 35 of the most important documents, and I'll close with this. Here's the URL if you want to look it up. You can Google it and look for downgrade controversy, and it'll show up. But here's a short URL if you want it. HTTPS colon slash slash tinyurl.com slash 4D8J7HC. E, and all those letters are lowercase. So look that up, find it. I've got to let you go because the next session will start, and if you're not there, they're going to be mad at me. So thank you.